Hello listeners, good morning. This is Green Left Weekly Radio on 3TR 855 on your AM dial. Um, yeah, so yeah, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio and in the studio it's um, me, Jacob and Lali in the studio. <laughs> yes, thanks Jacob. Yeah, said the twice, but um, anyway. You want to um, say the um, acknowledgement of land? Yeah, so I guess before I, we talk about um, the program coming ahead, um, I'd like to acknowledge um, that FreeCR is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kulin Nation, and I'd like to pay my respect um, to Elders past and present, and that this always was, always will be um, Aboriginal land. Right. News time. Yeah, so I guess one, um, one kind of news story I just want to kind of bring up um, is... You know, something that's sort of vaguely kind of been appearing in the news every now and then. Um, this is this whole kind of the big kind of scandals that are kind of popping up about um, the Royal Commission into the misconduct of banking, superannuation and financial services industry. And there's just an article that has just popped up on Green Left Weekly um, where, you know, the, our, like, the response of Green Left Weekly to this is that, you know, the kind of scandals... Um, I mean, some of the examples of, of kind of the scandals and appalling behaviour that has um, happened by the major banks and financial planners from the past decade um, includes allegations of bribery, um, forged documents, um, repeated failure to verify customers' financial positions before lending money, and selling insurance to people who could never claim on it. And it has been found that banks and a MP, a financial services company, were continuing to charge fees from people after they had died and that, um, you know, investment rights from financial planners had led to some people losing their homes and life savings while others la- lost large chunks of their superannuation savings through, um, you know, exportant kind of exit fees. And of course, what also recently happened, AMP admitted lying to the Australian Securities and Investments Commission and the Commonwealth Bank admitted to some of its, um, some of its financial advisors have been charging fees for services never provided. Um, and AMP CEO Craig Miller, um, became the first high profile casualty, announcing he was resigning shortly after giving evidence to the commission. Um, and, you know, hopefully others will follow, but of course, those responsible for serious financial crimes, as Jim McElroy here, who wrote the article for Green Left Weekly Rights, needs to be charged and convicted. And, I mean, one of the sort of responses we can, you know, kind of have as kind of radicals and anti-capitalists um, to this kind of Royal Commission is it ultimately highlights uh, a need for a comprehensive and radical solution to the crisis in the banking system. And, you know, there's a kind of, in this article, one of the things we, um, it talks about here is that, you know, this question that the big four banks must be nationalised um, so people can take back their stolen wealth and a new public banking system must be created under, you know, democratic community control. Because, uh, you know, oh, there's all this proposal of, you know, talking about more tighter regulations, etc. but I just don't think, you know, tighter regulations and necessarily fix the whole broken nature of the banking system. Yes, the banking system isn't exactly functioning. It has never functioned very well since they allowed the Commonwealth Bank to go private. There has been um, a lot of issues and um, the government have been ignoring it as as much as they can and um, 
I think, I think, you know, there's one other occasion, I'm trying to remember about 10 years ago, or probably even 15 years ago, when there was another scandal where people lost a lot of superannuation. One of my friends that was working with me lost about 300,000 from her, um, superannuation. So she was absolutely astounded and she's, oh, what's happened here? So this is sort of stuff that, that rips people of their um, superannuation and especially women suffer most from this sort of stuff because they seek, I guess, uh, financial counseling more than anybody else mm. to try and organize the superannuation because women generally have much less superannuation than men. So it makes it harder for women. So it's, it's just particularly, it's a, it's a gender, um, you know, affecting um, scheme as well. But um, the fact that they've been refusing to have royal commission for so long and now they've decided to have it has been um, spoken by, especially in the comedy festival too. So it's, it's quite funny that um, they make so much fun of this government. Comedy is having a ball at the moment because of the way the, the, the current government functions and uh, the... Um, they started when the Barnaby Joyce the, the saga started, and there are ongoing stuff, um, comedy um, routines done on the basis of those things. But the serious part is, of course, you know, the fact that this government is so supportive of capital that it has had the the, the gumption to keep refusing to have the the uh, Royal Commission, despite the fact that they knew what was happening. Mm. That's the hypocrisy and the mm. betrayal of the people, you know, who worked for them. Well, some of the um, some notable um, Liberal Party politicians, including a former um, politician, uh, John Howard, has um, they've been adamantly yes. against <laughs> um, the Royal Commission to the banks. In fact, yeah. um, John Howard um, described it as rank socialism. <laughs> Yes, I, I wrote something on Facebook on that thing. What's rank socialism anyway? <laughs> no one can explain it. But what is it? Do you know what it is? Oh, rank socialism. I, I think it just basically, uh, rank is just a word that um, would essentially mean, it would essentially be, just be an, uh, a meaningless adjective. Yeah, it's basically you rank just, somebody against a set of values. Rank. Yeah, well, yeah. It's, what is that? It's meaningless. You yeah, yeah. Well, it it's, it's essentially a meaningless adjective that just makes it seem more the term seem more pure it's in its in its meaning. I, I won't swear on radio, but it is absolute nonsense. Mm. Anyway, let's move on. Okay, guess in, um, I want to kind of move away a bit from Australian politics just for a bit and to talk about what's happening um, in Palestine. And there's a, a new article that popped up in that's in latest Green Left Weekly, um, where Lisa Gleeson here writes about um, the Great March Return. Um, which is a six week, the six week of camp, um, the six week of protests in Gaza still continuing on and it's, you know, fighting for the right of, for Palestinian refugees to return to their homes, um, which was commemorated on Prisoner's Day on April the 20th. Um, the, the five main sites of the, of the march in Gaza are becoming semi-permanent encampments as thousands of Gazians provide support for thousands of others who continue to approach the fortified border with Israel. Um, the campaign will is going to be continuing till the seventh anniversary of Al Nakba on May 15th, which marks the founding of Israel on the back of and the ethnic cleansing of um, Palestinians. Gazians are defying tear gas and live animation fire to get closer to the heavily fortified border each Friday. Um, Israel complains about infiltrators um, breaching barriers, but the reality is that the infrastructure of Israel's heavily militarized border extends several hundred meters inside Gaza itself. 
Um, when conflict occurs, um, Israel can and does unlikely declare more no-go zones that extend even further into Gaza, and this means that any Palestinian caught in these newly declared no-go zones on their own land becomes an infiltrator and therefore a legitimate target for the Israeli Defence Force. Um, and so the accusations of terrorist interest, um, infiltration involve people protesting for the right to return to land stolen from them. Being able to go home, the right return is guaranteed under international law and is explicitly stated in Article 11 of United States Resolution 194, but the right is denied to Palestinians by the Israeli occupation. And, of course, in, in response to the, these ongoing protests, um, Israelis is firing on so-called infiltrators with live ammunition. The result is casualty rates not seen since Israel's 2014 war on Gaza. And concluding here, by April 24th, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in the Occupied Palestinian Territories had counted 39 deaths and nearly 3,000 injuries since the Great March began on March 20th, and half of those injuries were from live ammunition. And so that's kind of the, um, the current kind of situation um, that's um, happening in um, Palestine at this point. Okay. Well, that genocide has been going on since 1948 by stealth, and yet um, you find that the international um, bodies like um, the UN and so on have done very little to support the Palestinians and or... Um, discipline the um, Israeli government and I guess it's worsened since Trump came to power who has you know capitulated totally to the Israeli government um, that, that relationship has strengthened which means the, um, Palest- the, the Palestinians are terribly worse off so I think the, the campaign has to gather speed and momentum to save the Palestinians at this stage. It's just looking so awful because this is going to end up with what, what's happening in the Middle East otherwise as well in total is, um, is, is clear about, um, you know, the campaign about uh, oil in the area and why are these wars being conducted in the Middle East. Um, it's, it's a bigger picture as well, whether it's Afroin or whether it's Palestine. Palestinians have suffered for far too long, um, and the culmination has to happen soon. This cannot keep going on. It's just absolutely disgraceful that there is no human rights at all being um, um, you know, regarded as a decent value in, in, in any of those uh, places. So... Uh, what's, there's something coming up about the Palestinians that supports uh, yeah, the mar- march, I think, isn't there? Uh-huh. So we could we could come we could announce it later. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> um, the uh, I've got a couple of interviews coming up. Um, one is with Tim Gooden about the Change the Rules campaign, uh, which we'll play after announcements. Uh, we also will play an. Uh, um, it's, it's not an interview, but it's a contribution by Hannah Middleton about the Anzac myth, so to speak. And we have an interview with, with Adrienne, who's the human rights, um, senior human rights lawyer with the Human Rights Watch about um, the abortion laws in Queensland. We forgot mm-hmm. to say this at the beginning. Apologies, uh, listeners. But, um, okay, so should we read one more news item before we go to the... Um, the, uh, well, why don't we go recording? straight to the interview first and, um, and then we can go talk a bit more news later. <laughs> sure. Okay. I just want to introduce, um, this speaker here. 
Her name's Dr. Hannah Middleton, and she's actually from Sydney and a member of CICD, and she works um, or has worked at New South Wales University and Sydney University. She's a peace activist, and she hands out the Peace Prize in Sydney that's handed out every year. Now, this contribution she made was actually uh, made last year at the Unitarian Church. Um, although uh, it may, it, it's, it's about a year old, the fact is the content is so relevant today. I think it's really worth listening to it. It's, it's an amazing alternate view, and I think there are a lot of people who hold this view about the Anzac um, Day propaganda, so to speak. So here we go. This is Hannah Middleton. The 1915 invasion of Turkey at Gallipoli by Britain and its allies was a disastrous failure. The carnage was appalling. Turkish total losses were about 300,000. Estimates of the British and Dominion losses lie between 198,000 and 215,000 with something like 46,000 men dead. 8,709 8, Australians were killed in action or died of wounds or disease. Australians wounded and missing numbered 19,441. Think about the figures. From all of this appalling loss, the Anzac myth was crafted. A story which suggests that Australian soldiers possessed qualities including endurance, courage, ingenuity, good humour, larrikinism and mateship. The soldiers are perceived to have been stoical and laconic, irreverent in the face of authority, naturally egalitarian and disdainful of British class differences. The Anzac myth also suggests that the Gallipoli campaign was the birth of Australian nationhood. For ruling elites, Anzac is not simply a historical commemoration. Rather, it has been and is being used to promote unquestioning respect for the military and acceptance of military action as an effective and legitimate way to solve problems. It is also used effectively to suppress anti-war sentiment. Today, the world situation increasingly resembles the cauldron of tensions that dominated in the period prior to World War I. The United States has launched non-stop wars and interventions over the past two and a half decades in a bid to counter its economic decline through military means. US President Trump, as we all know, has used 60 cruise Tomahawk missiles to bomb a military airfield near Homs, Syria's third largest city. Neither Trump nor any US government agencies has presented a shred of proof that the Assad government 
is the one responsible for the use of sarin gas. Trump has also threatened to send, well, claimed he had sent, and we now know hasn't sent, but threatened to send, warships to the Korean Peninsula, threatening that the US is prepared to shoot down any North Korean missile launches. Trump has ignited what could become a catastrophic escalation in our region that poses the threat of nuclear war. And this is happening at a time when the majority of the world's nations are negotiating a United Nations treaty to eliminate nuclear weapons forever. Shamefully, our own Australian government is boycotting the talks to ban the bomb and is enthusiastically supporting Trump's aggressive and dangerous military action. Now, as perhaps never before, it's time to challenge the Anzac myth and its influence. There is a profound dishonesty about what is said and what is not said about the Gallipoli invasion. Of course, the word invasion is very rarely used. Anzac is a sanitized version of war. Australian soldiers of World War I are no longer depicted as superb fighters who prided themselves on being able to impale a German or a Turk on their bayonets. Now they are the fallen. One of the important writers on this question, Ken Inglis, said, Soldiers of the Queen did not stagger or sink or topple or have bits blown off, but fell to become not quite simply the dead, but the fallen, with cleanly, heroically, sacrificially gave their lives in war. And so we come to speak not of precisely how they died, eviscerated, burnt, drowned in mud, of thirst, and by bleeding out and screaming for their mothers in no man's land, but rather that they just fell. We speak of those who fell, We do not speak of the fact that they were sent overseas to kill. There is much talk of dying, or more commonly, of sacrifice. There is little mention in the Anzac myth of killing, and almost never any assessment of the carnage inflicted on distant countries in our name. It is said that the soldiers paid the ultimate sacrifice. But actually, they didn't sacrifice themselves. Officers sacrificed them. There is a stark difference. The Anzac myth speaks of heroes. It says nothing about the 155,000 wounded and maimed the countless men stricken from shell shock, the disfigured men who were shunned, 
the rampant alcoholism and morphine addiction, the terrified kids and battered wives, and the suicides. There is also in the Anzac myth an overwhelming silence about the role of colonial troops at Gallipoli. They have been written out of history. But alongside what we might call Anglo-Celtic Anzac soldiers were thousands of indigenous Australians, Maoris, Senegalese, Zouaves, Sikhs, Gurkhas and others as well as a contingent of Zionists from Palestine who formed the Zion Mule Corps. The Anzac myth has become so dominant in today's political culture because it has been so heavily promoted by successive Australian governments. First by Hawke in the 1980s, continued by Keating, are most heavily promoted by Howard. There is no doubt that there has been a major and sustained investment by Australian governments in the commemoration of war memorial building, battlefield pilgrimages, and the word pilgrimage in itself is interesting, and in the development of educational materials and activities aimed at socialising our school children into the Anzac myth. Successive Labour and Liberal governments have funded an intense programme highlighting the importance of our military history. Books, films, research projects have been subsidised. Old monuments have been refurbished, new ones created, and much more. A particularly worrying development has been the deliberate targeting of children. Schools across the country are bombarded with free material, including films, books, CDs and posters. Subsidies are provided for trips to the Australian War Memorial in Canberra. Essay competitions award winners with fully funded tours of European and Middle Eastern battlefields. The Department of Veterans Affairs has provided material that teaches that our national values, our national identity and our development of a nation have been achieved through our military engagement in foreign wars. The government is said to have spent about $325 million on activities commemorating the centenary of World War I. In recent years, ANZAC has become the dominant force within Australian history, overshadowing everything else. Rather than recognising our role in conflict, so often as a pawn of, of powerful empires, we have ignored it and transformed our participation into something much more palatable through the creation of a false historical memory in Anzac. Another of the important critical writers, Mark McKenney, wrote this. 
It seems impossible to deny the broader militarization of our history and culture, the surfeit of jingoistic military histories, the increasing tendency for military displays before football grand finals, the extension of the term ANZAC to encompass firefighters and sporting champions, the professionally stage-managed event of the dawn service at Anzac Cove, the burgeoning popularity of battlefield tourism, particularly Gallipoli and the Kokoda Track, the ubiquitous newspaper supplements extolling the virtues of soldiers past and present, and the tendency of the media and both main political parties to view the death of the last World War I veterans as significant national moments. The Anzac myth is a calculated and deliberate distortion of Australian history. The inevitable consequence of the campaign to celebrate Australia's war history is that all other aspects of our past are overshadowed and thereby diminished. Everything before 1915 disappears behind the Anzac obsession. In fact, events which have contributed to the formation of the Australian nation have predominantly taken place in peacetime. Events including the ending of transportation in 1840, the Eureka Stockade in 1854, the first Australian Trade Union Congress in 1879, the publication of The Man from Snowy River in 1895, Federation on May 8, 1901, the Harvester Minimum Wage Decision in 1907, and the suffrage movement with women's suffrage for state elections in all states in 1911. We should also, of course, never forget that this process of peaceful nation-building also includes the 40,000 years of indigenous history with the final 200 years plus of the frontier wars, murder, dispossession, exclusion and impoverishment. This was clearly an event which was not peaceful and which has had a profound impact on the Australian character. The recent militaristic view of our past suggests that our nation was born or was made on the shores of Gallipoli, that our national identity was forged in overseas wars. This Anzac version of our history conveys an appalling and false idea that a that nations are made in war, not in peace, on battlefields, not in parliaments, that soldiers, not statesmen, are the nation's founders, that the bayonet is mightier than the pen. But many historians have pointed out that the Australian Constitution 
was created by men who had never been to war, such as Deakin, Barton and Kingston. Contrary to the popular idea that Australian values were forged in military service, the majority of Australian nation builders, and there are so many names, but let's just say from Curtin to Menzies, never served in war. The dominance of our history by the Anzac myth in recent years has created an environment conducive to war, has made it easier for Australian governments to commit to conflict and harder for critics to engage in a serious national debate. The heroic image of the digger makes it easier to politically justify wars our powerful friend wants to wage and harder to question the costs of war. To challenge our involvement in wars is demonised as cowardly attacks on the men and women in the front line. The prestige of the armed forces shields politicians from legitimate scrutiny and debate. The relentless focus on our military history reinforces war, violence and military solutions as key options to resolve international conflict. We are taught repeatedly to see the military as a feasible and successful mode of conflict resolution. The Anzac myth stifles dissent, turning, critis, critis, oh, sorry, turning any criticisms beneath the compulsion to be patriotic and stand by our troops. It provides a means by which Australian governments neutralise dissent about any commitment to war. The majority of the Australian people did not support Australia's involvement in the 2003 Iraq war. But once the commitment had been made, the Howard government made it difficult to critique the war on the grounds that the men and women deployed to fight it must be supported. We had to stand by our boys. Criticising the Anzac myth is indeed a serious thing, for it is a criticism of the evil and folly of war and of Australia's role as a pawn in international conflicts. It is a criticism of Australia's defence policy and exorbitant defence spending and criticism of our relationship with the United States. Dissent threatens power structures which, enforce, which reinforce war and not peace and do undermine our ability to act in our own best interests in foreign policy decisions. That's what's wrong with ANZAC and why today it is so dangerous. And it is why we must all work to foster the alternative view we need memorials to our heroes, 
As one example, women like Vida Goldstein, Adela Pankhurst, and Pauline Mitchell. There is a peace park in Marrickville, and at a community centre in Sydney, there is a plaque with the names of peace activists past and present. We need far more of these. Our heroes need to be remembered and we need to use them to challenge the Anzac myth. It is our responsibility to be on the side of life and not death, to dissent from the Anzac myth and to create a new national consensus that abhors war and honours peace and justice. Welcome back to Green Love Radio 3CR. 855 on AM dial. And you just heard Hannah Middleton, the peace activist, give a very incisive um, analysis of um, the Anzac myth. I hope you enjoyed it. And those who have missed it, um, it'll be available on podcast later this week. Right. Okay, let's go on to more news, um, hey, Jacob. So I have some news um, um, in Australia, um, basically about um, public transport. <laughs> yes. And so this is an article written by Mary, who's um, Mekovic. Merkinich, um, um, that um, she sometimes uh, is a, uh, a guest on this on this program, and um, anyway, sh- sh- um, this is an article about um, the Victorian government's decision to fast track the North East Link, and to give a bit of an explanation for what the North East Link is, and this was an announcement on um, April the fifteenth, and it's basically that they're going to fast track uh, a twenty-six kilometre freeway to connect um, the Metropolitan Ring Road at Greensboro with the Eastern Freeway at Bullen. And one of the problems with this is this route would basically take up land identified in the Doncaster Rail Study in 2014, preventing essentially, you know, the long kind of anticipated, which I'm not even sure if will ever come, um, Doncaster <laughs> Rail Line. And uh, clearly what this is showing is sort of like, you know, we live in this kind of era where, you know, Climate change is um, impending on us, and what we have in Australia is, the, especially in the state more. of Victoria, we have what they want to do is to build more roads, more tarmac, more use of petrol. Um, What's wrong with that? Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, Manning, Manningham, which is the kind of metropolitan region that covers a certain chunk of the eastern suburbs, including um, Doncaster, um, is still the only Melbourne metropolitan region without a train or tram line. And I actually I work, I actually work in Doncaster every morning it's from disgusting. Monday and Thursday, and the bus. The bus routes are completely Terrible. packed. Like they, they're completely crowded and it's ridiculous how mm. there's, there's no train station. Um, but there has been, um, in regards to this North East link that the Victorian state government is pushing, um, there is opposition to it. And one of the groups opposing the project, Friends of Banyu, said in a statement that at 16.5 million, the project is the most expensive infrastructure project yet proposed in Victoria and the costiest um, road project ever constructed in this or any other state, and you know what, what? And and they also added for massive costs, as we've consistently argued, we could overhaul the Melbourne transport um, network in Melbourne with lower cost, more effective infrastructure projects, including Doncaster Rail, including light rail or tram options, an airport rail link, and finally. 
you know, things, other things that could be implemented is a finalised duplication of the Hurstbridge line, extend um, um, the South Mian line beyond Miranda. 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 That's actually happening at the moment. Mm. So I just went up to Miranda the other day and um, the, that, that uh, tram line is being extended from um, South Marang up to uh, mm. Miranda. So they, yeah, that is currently happening. And Not then tram line, sorry, train. Train. Yeah. And then there's also... Um, you know, another thing they could allow for more trains through the loop, electric, electronic um, bus fleet connecting with trains. And, of course, I'm not sure if this is being announced by the state government. I mean, the state government did announce some decent public yeah, transport options yeah. recently. Um, but there's also, you know, another thing that they still need to build is a Roval rail line. And this is coming <laughs> from someone who used to live in Roval. Yes. Um, the public transport is absolutely atrocious there. Yeah, it's everywhere, not just there. Yeah. It, the worst the worst parts are Roval and Doncaster. Mm. But keep going. I'll yeah. Well, if you live in if you live in a place like where this um, studio is, you'd probably say public transport is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Even um, despite the fact probably the biggest issue with the public transport of this area is the trams are completely overcrowded. Things like Route 86 need more frequent trams. I agree. I was going to say talk about that because I try to use the public transport after some time. And I had to skip two trams because they're so packed. Mm. So I was saying, this is ridiculous. So I took my car and had to go into to, to this conference I was going into. So... The the problem is the high density policy, high density living policy, has meant that there's an increase in population in all these areas, all of the CBD and the the, the the you know surrounding areas of the CBD. But they haven't increased public the frequency of public transport. Mm. So it's bad. Whichever you look at it, it's terrible. But anyway. Yeah, and so um you know just to um to, to end this article um in. One of the concluding quotes is, in short, a holistic integrated transport system for the needs of the 21st century rather than yet another tolled freeway with major detrimental impacts on the environmental communities will not resolve the rapidly increasing congestion and look locks us into a, into a car-dependent future. And just for listeners' information, um, Friends of Banyu and other local community groups are organising actions to fight the construction of the North East Link. And to keep in touch, visit friendsofbanyu.org. Yeah. Right, just we'll play a quick announcement and then move on to one other Do you article. want to just do that um, news and then I'll do the announcement? Okay, well, I'll do... This is just a bit of a last article um, about a work for the Dole scheme and, you know, how it's... You know, deliberately causing harm. A Senate, and it's written here that a Senate committee into the, commi- um, the community development program, um, which is, you know, a, t- a program that's kind of aimed at covering remote employment and community development has found it causes real harm to people and communities and it is a racist, um, work for the doll scream and it must be scrapped because this program is mainly applied to, um, remote Aboriginal communities. And in this, um, Senate committee report, um, it included 20 to recommend changes, saying the scheme must drop its um, onerous kind of obligations to ensure that CDP participants have the same legal rights as other income support participants. Um, the, the implication, even from um, from its supporters, is clear. The scheme, which targets job seekers living in remote regions who receive New Start allowance, parenting payment, or youth allowance benefits, is discriminatory and punitive, and it must change. 
Um, and to give a bit of a history um, of this um, of the CDB, it began on July first, um, two thousand fifteen, and you know it replaced. It was it was aimed at replacing the remote jobs and community program. The government says it helps people find work and allows them to contribute to their communities and gain skills while looking for work. However, the reality, as written here, is very different. Um, currently, there are over 33,000 CDP participants. Overwhelmingly, those um, taking part identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. And getting a job in remote areas is not an easy task for many reasons, not least of which are the lack of jobs, the lack of training providers, the lack of infrastructure, the distances to travel to get to the workplace or to an interview, the cost of travelling, cultural differences and more. And the CDP do not, does not pay wages for the 25 hours of work. Participants have to undertake every week to receive welfare benefits with benefits clocking in at 290 a week on average. This means that participants are earning about $12 an hour, which is far below the minimum wage. It's written here that the Senate inquiry also recommends that communities be given a greater say in how a community development program is delivered in their area. And kind of the conclusion here is that, you know, the CDP is, you know, driving, drives, is contributing to driving up cri- poverty and crime in some remote Indigenous communities. Um, Labor Senator, uh, Labor Senator Pad Pat Dodson said the scheme has affected some communities so badly, some have had to forego, for, forego, forego their own, for exist, well, no, forage for existence. Um, people are going hungry because they can't access the bureaucracy that goes with the Centrelink system. It's very stressful. Even if you go through a system, it's very difficult to access the things you want because mm. they make the processes so cumbersome. Mm. And now I guess the concluding statement for this article is, you know, this whole discussion is that the CDP is racist and discriminatory and needs to be scrapped. Instead, what we need to fight for is a well-funded community-led training and employment programs with award wages that helps lead to real and lasting jobs. Okay, welcome back to uh, Green Love Radio and on 3CR Friday Breakfast. Um, we have on the line Adrian Walters, who is a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre. And the Law Centre had put out a bit of news about the transformation, or hopeful trans- transformation of abortion laws in Queensland. Uh, good morning, Adrian. Good morning, how are you? Good, thanks. Thank you for um, making yourself available for 3CR this morning. Um, to, so the Human Rights Law Centre made a submission to an inquiry, is that right? Yeah, that's right. The Queensland Law Reform Commission are looking at how Queensland's woefully outdated abortion laws can be brought into the 21st century. Mm-hmm. It's a really important inquiry. Yep. And what, what was your proposal? Or is that, is that uh, private? No, no, no. It's absolutely public. Um, what we want to see is abortion comprehensively removed from the criminal laws in Queensland. Uh, the criminal law has no role to play in health matters. We want the law to respect women as competent decision makers, the competent decision makers that we are. And we want to make sure women can safely and privately access reproductive health services without having to run a gauntlet of anti-abortion, intimidation and abuse. Mm. So what is uh, the current status of um, abortion laws in Queensland? So currently abortion is regulated by 19th century criminal laws. So the laws written over 100 years ago and obviously they reflect very outdated views about women and sex. And we want to, um, we obviously want 
the Queensland government to move those laws back into the, the 21st century. Um, currently, abortion is a crime, except in certain circumstances. So, for example, where a woman's life is, is in danger. And there are ex- exceptions in the criminal law, but they're written in a way that causes a lot of uncertainty for women and doctors. But what's made very clear is that doctors face up to 14 years in jail, women face up to seven years. And it's not merely a theoretical threat. In, I think, 2009 or 2010, a Cairns couple was prosecuted for procuring an abortion. Um, We've heard about a case involving a 12-year-old girl in which um, confusion around the laws resulted in her having to wait over a month for um, to be able to access an abortion. Mm. And so it's plainly wrong that the criminal law is having any say over what happens to women's bodies and the reproductive decisions that they, they need to make. Hmm. Um, how is the Queensland, current Queensland's laws different from the other states? Is there abortion much difference? Laws, uh, abortion laws all around Australia differ and they all have the same origins. So they all date back to a law from the United Kingdom that um, criminalised abortion. So we started from a point of abortion being um, in the criminal code. Gradually, across the different states and territories in Australia, we're seeing abortion slowly removed from criminal laws. So in the ACT, in Victoria and in Tasmania, abortion is no longer in the criminal law. Um, and in Victoria and the ACT in particular, the laws have been changed in a way that means that women's decision-making capacity um, and their right to decide what happens to their bodies is respected. Um, currently, Queensland's laws don't do that. Um, they don't reflect community values and they don't reflect modern medical practice. And that's, So that's what we're asking um, the Queensland Law Reform Commission to recommend. Um, and, and I mean, it's positive to see that the Queensland government has said that it's committed to modernising Queensland of, Queensland's abortion laws, and so, and so hopefully we'll see laws that really respect um, the rights of, of women and remove abortion from the criminal law. Hmm. There was a recent incident in Parliament in, in, in Queensland a few months ago where um, a parliamentarian moved a private bill in relation to abortion and that failed. Um, so what hopes do you think uh, we can have about the Queensland inquiry um, changing at least some of the restrictions it places on women and abortion? Well, I think it's really positive after those so there were two inquiries um, last year and in 2016, and they obviously looked into the bills that had been put forward. But um, in the lead-up to the Queensland election last year, the Queensland government asked the Law Reform Commission to look into reforming Queensland's abortion laws and to provide the government with draft legislation. And it has stated its commitment to modernising and clarifying Queensland's abortion laws. And, you know, that's an acknowledgement that they're out of date. It's an acknowledgement that there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment. Mm. And those things are both really bad for women's health 
And so I have confidence in the Queensland um, government um, living up to its, its commitment to modernise uh, Queensland's abortion laws. And what we want to make sure is that that modernisation not only removes abortion from the criminal law in Queensland, but it also results in laws that respect the capacity and women's decision-making um, competency. Um, women should have the right to choose what happens to their bodies in consultation with their doctors. Mm. Um, that's that's a that's what we've always been. Uh, the women's movement have been fighting for a long, long time. Um, yeah. The the submissions um, by the churches and other conservative bodies would surely uh, be overwhelming, given that it's in Queensland and we've got a lot of conservative um, politicians and um, you know religious organisations that will definitely put in. Um, have you heard of submissions that have opposed what you what you have submitted? Um, I'm not sure what um, other submissions have been put in from uh, those groups. I'm sure there are there are groups that um, have views that different differ from our own. That's always the way, and, yes, and sure. this is a controversial issue. But I think what we need to focus on is the fact that um, polling has indicated that the majority of the Queensland community support a, a woman's right to choose what happens to her body in consultation with her doctor mm-hmm. and they support the decriminalisation of abortion. Okay. And so I think these these are facts that we need to be building and when you um, see like a new Queensland law reform. Sorry. So when do you see um, a result, some sort of um, result from the submissions? Sorry, what was that? When do you hope to see some, some results from the submissions? They obviously will go through all the submissions and come up with the findings or recommendations. Uh, when do you hope for that to happen? So the Queensland Law Reform Commission is, um, is due to report to the Minister on the 30th of June. Okay. Um, they then have 14 sitting days to table a report in Parliament. So we might, might not see um, the Law Reform Commission's report and its draft legislation um, until a bit later in the year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you so much, Adrienne. That's very informative. And hopefully we can catch up again after the 30th of June about what the result is. Yeah, sure, that sounds fantastic. I'd be happy to. And we just interviewed um, Adrian Walters from the Human Rights Law Centre about uh, submission to the Queensland's call for um, government's call for um, reform to their abortion laws. So we move on to the other news that you're dying to talk about. Oh, um, yeah. So I'm, I'm quite, um, <laughs> I mean, I only have a ch- opportunity to really talk about this for three to four minutes, and it's quite a long article, so I'll just kind of give the gist of the summary. And you can read more um, about it in Green Left Weekly, um, um, the, especially the latest issue. Um, and this is a kind of report um, from Sam Rainwright that, you know, resistance to French President Emmanuel Macron's austerity plans is gathering pace and what this kind of development will kind of determine the future of France. Um, because, you know, what's kind of interesting, I think an interesting kind of fact is, you know, Macron and his kind of big business patrons kind of complain, as Sam writes here, that France has failed to modernise like Britain did during Margaret Thatcher's reign. Oh, um, and, of course, a key turning point um, <laughs> that explains why is the French working class has been essentially been able to slow this process um, was the, the huge social movement and strike wave of 1995 in which millions of people took part to the streets. But right now what you're having now is that Macron is 
um, with his party making up a majority, uh, attempting to, you know, implement a plan of cuts and privatisations and deregulation. Catch up with Margaret Thatcher and yes. what should he do to the miners? Yes, so, and so that's <laughs> where, that's the context of like which this big, um, massive train workers strike is happening yes. in France right now. Um, but then it's spontaneously kind of breaking into, you know, yeah, students, students o- yeah. occupying university, um, uh, protesting in universities. Um, you know, some people are kind of arguing, you know, this is the anniversary of May 1968 that people yes. are sort of arguing that, you know, this is potentially a kind of May 1968 movement, um, for France. Although I would say, Probably not necessarily because in May 1968 happened in a, in a better context where the left was probably much stronger. stronger yeah. um, although, I mean, there's lots of different analysis. And in fact, we should probably cover May 1968 in our program next month. I mean, one of the other issues in May 68 was the role of the Communist Party of, of, um, France, which is completely sold out, um, um, to the, to the, to this, um, to the Social Democrats. Um, but yeah, so it's all kind of building, um, you can read more detail about kind of what's happening in sort of the practicals and the tactical questions. Um, but the kind of, um, Sam Wright, writing right here, includes that the social struggles have to spread and build even more momentum. And of course, all eyes are kind of building towards this big day of May 5th as a kind of big day of action. Um, but, you know, we have no idea the kind of what's going to happen here. It's either that Macron kind of wins this struggle or the workers will win out against Let's the kind of new liberalism. Given the, um, I guess, ferocity, people are angry around the world, not just in France, even here, and we'll come to that later on, but it's it's, it's uh, expression of the frustration everybody's suffering because of the onslaught of the right wing. Anyway, I'm just going to play a quick um, announcement, and then we'll go on to the calendar, mm. okay? Calendar time, activist calendar time, mm. and I'll start off the um, announcements. The first one, of course, is the SO workers, now more than 300 days um, striking against the um, EBA uh, proposed by the um, bosses, and that's a, uh, SO and UGL gas uh, maintenance um, section. And, of course, you can find this on um, Facebook. And this was the highlight at the Change the Rules uh, conference. They were, talked, they, they were talking about this quite a bit, and, and the workers actually mobilized from there to come down to this um, the delegates' meeting. It was, was just a fantastic display, according to what I've heard. Okay, um, April 27th, that is today. International Workers Memorial Day Service, 10.30 to 11.30 at Trades Hall. And that's corner of Lycon and Victoria. Uh, again, another day, another event today, stall and leafleting, solidarity with Afrin and Australia's silence. So join the um, stall it, under the clocks at uh, Flinders uh, Station uh, to campaign against Turkey's criminal invasion of Afrin and its large-scale ethnic cleansing of the Kurdish population. Organized by Australians for Kurdistan and Kurdish Democratic Community Center of Victoria. Tomorrow, 28th of April, Saturday, there's a forum, Where Are We Heading? Uh, Q&A for uh, racialized and criminalized communities. African, Australian and other migrant communities have been very concerned about the current political context and upcoming elections. The committee has been devastated by racism. So there's lots of questions, and this is a forum um, that's going to be held at the town hall in Kensington, 
30-34 Belair Street, Kensington. 29th of April, the Sunday, uh, Call of the Forest, a fundraiser for Ecuador's threatened rainforest. 5 to 8 p.m., $20 solidarity, $15 waged, $10 concession. At Hope Street, Arts Warehouse, 11A Hope Street in Brunswick. And on the same day, we have a film screening, Stop Adani, A Mighty Force, The Jewish Ecological Coalition, The Australian Religious Response to Climate Change. In, invite you to see this powerful film. Join our discussion about how to add our weight to this fight. It's at, 50, at 7 p.m. and it's 55A Blessington Street in Kilda. 1st of May, of course, is May Day. Solidarity Rally in March, 5.30 at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. May Day Film Night, 7 p.m. Democratic Workers Club, 583 High Street, Northcote. The 3rd of May, uh, no, 3rd to the 14th of May, there's a Human Rights Arts and Film Festival. And if you put that in the your Google search, you'll find the full program, Human Rights Arts and Film Festival. I think we did a interview with um, uh, one of the um, film uh, presenters um, a couple of weeks ago, about three weeks ago, about um, the refugees and and the, sta- and the status of refugees across the world. And there's many more fantastic films being shown. Third uh, of May. Uh, Wreath Lane, five to five, at five p.m. The Eight Hour Monument, opposite Trades Hall. Medic Multicultural Event at six p.m. at Trades Hall as well. And then on the third of May again, there's a public meeting. Bill McKibben, Accelerate Climate Action as part of 350 Australia's um, push to make sure that climate change will be front and center of every election going forward. Bill McKibben is coming back to Australia to the end of April and early May as part of a global effort to accelerate climate change actions. 5.30 p.m., Collingwood Town Hall, and that should be a fantastic meeting. It's 150 Hollow Street in Abbotsford. Okay, so um, now my turn. Um, There's going to be a forum, asbestos, um, not here, um, not anywhere, on that same day, which is um, Thursday, the 3rd of May. And that's going to be at the Fornbury Theatre, um, which is at 859 High Street, and it's hosted by Labour for Aid and Union Aid Abroad, Apartheida, AP Heater or something. Yeah. And um, Friday, the 4th of May, there will be a picket. It's time to get the, off the fence, um, Bill Shorten, which is organised by the Stop Adani. Um, and that's going to be um, at f- um, 5 to 7pm at 12 Hall Street in Mooney Ponds. Um, there'll be a book for launch, Ecofeminism as Politics, Na- Nature, Marx and the Postmodern. And this is um, going to be a talk given by Ariel um, Salia. Ariel, be- Ariel yeah, Salia. Yeah. Ariel Sally, um, who will give a talk about ecofeminism to mark the re-release of her classic title, and that's at 7pm at the New International Bookshop, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton South. And on Sunday, the May the 6th, will be um, the big May Day March, with music from 11am and a march at 1pm at the Trades Hall, Ligon Street in Carlton South. And on Tuesday, May 8th, there'll be a public meeting. Um, the robots are coming. What would Mark say about 
Automation threatens paid employment while we are being subjected to the prolotion of the intensified um, of frag- oft fragmented working periods within the same day. And that's featuring Humphrey McQueen, who's a Canberra-based historian. And that's at 7pm at the New International Bookshop at, on Tuesday, May the 8th. And on Wednesday, um, the 9th, um, there'll be a big um, Change the Rules rally. Turnbull and his government have given big business too much power. While so many of us are in insecure work with record low wages and conditions, a third of companies don't even pay tax. This is why we are coming together to change the rules for working people. And this will be at 10 a.m. outside Trades Hall and Ligon um, on Ligon Street in Carden South. And it's organised by the Victorian Trades Hall Council. On Saturday, the May the 12th, will be the Victorian Socialist Campaign Launch um, at 7pm at the Grace Darling Hotel at 114 Smith Street in Collingwood. And then there'll be on Friday, the May the 8th, there'll be the Stop Adani Rise Up kind of show, which is at 7pm at the United Church, 212-214 Sydney Road in Brunswick. And at Saturday, May the 19th, will be the Palestine 70 Years of Nakba Rally, which will be at 12 noon at the State Library. Um, and the last um, thing will be an art exhibition, um, War Never Again, which will be happening at 3pm on Saturday, the May the 19th, at the Step Arts Gallery at 62 Ligon Street, um, Carlton. And all proceeds from this exhibition will be donated to ICANN and MAPA to support the vital work they've been doing to ban and nuclear weapons and promote peace. You left out the 22nd of May. Maybe it didn't come out of the print in your page. Oh, oh I can do that 22nd. one. 22nd. Yep. Oh. <laughs> All right, so the 22nd, on the Tuesday, the May the 22nd, will be a book launch, Capitalism, A Love, A Crime Story. Got <laughs> <laughs> that <been> confused. <laughs> in his new um, book, Harry Glassbeck um, makes the case that if the rules and doctrines of liberal law were applied as they should be, according to law's own pronouncement and methodology, corporate um, capitalism would be much harder to um, defend. And so they'll be at 7 p.m., in room one at the Shrades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton South. And it's hosted by the New International Bookshop and Search Foundation. And, of course, it is um, time for fundraising for 3CR. And if um, you liked what you've heard so far, please um, start thinking about donations to this program to keep it on air. And um, it costs over $90 per hour to run programs at 3CR. Um, the sooner we get started, the better. And we will be going into um, Radiothon Week soon. Um, now, we are coming into the last interview for this morning. And this interview I did last night, actually, with Tim Gooden, who's the former secretary of the Geelong Trades Hall, and he's a carpenter by trade and a delegate. And he attended the um, seminar, oh, no, no, sorry, he attended the delegates meeting, I think it was 17th, um, that was held at Trades Hall and addressed by Sally McManus from the ACTU in relation to the change to rules. So he's given us his impression of um, what he saw as a um, encouraging uh, gathering because a, a lot of people were actually turned away. So here we go. Welcome to 3CR, Tim. Um, it's a pleasure to have you again after some time. And we're going to talk about the change rules campaign. Yeah, yeah, good morning, everyone. Uh, yeah, well, the campaign on the outset was quite exciting. Uh, we had the big delegates meeting in Melbourne last week, um, although there was a couple, a couple of people got locked out. Yes, uh, I heard. The venue, the venue wasn't <laughs> big enough. Yeah, that's good. So, um, but uh, um, so they didn't they didn't get to hear. But I'm sure there'll be. I'm hoping that there'll be plenty of more delegates meetings in bigger venues. Yeah. So, um, 
so we can work on the campaign together. So, so how many how many do you think actually attended were allowed to be able to get in the venue? A thousand? Well, I think I think it was fifteen, fifteen or sixteen hundred that could sit down. Fantastic. So there were a couple hundred of us standing around the edge. Yeah. And then the 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 building owners, security guards. Um, said, oh, for safety reasons, we've got to lock the doors, can't let everyone in. So there's another three, 300 or so locked outside, you know. Okay, so uh, that's a very good start. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good, it's good. Yeah, uh, of- the, the, ACTU, the ACTU leadership, unlike last time, where um, uh, they weren't sort of present in 2005 when we kicked off the, the campaign against work choices, but yep. this time... Um, but they, they got up and um, led the way. So Alex Malice has outlined the, the campaign and the, the general demands that, um, that the unions sh- should be putting forward. Mm-hmm. And some of them, a lot of them are obvious. Yes. Uh, you know, workers have had pay increases for years. It's more uh, than 16 years. Yeah. yeah. Unions can't access, um, access workplaces. If any worker tries to organise anything, they get fined. Um, you know the, the whole system has been uh, rotten since um, since work choices was introduced by Howard. Absolutely. And some would say it was been rotten even before that. So <laughs> yes. it's about time that we start to identify some of this stuff and um, and campaign to get rid of it. Mm. I've got this ten point um, to, for starters. Anyway, as you say, it's not the the full list that you can come up with, but the uh, ten point. Uh, you know, sort of starting plan sounds pretty good, like rest- restoring um, the rights of union access uh, and organisers on the job. Um, it's an important one. And remove the fines and sanctions against workers uh, and their union for taking industrial action. Uh, lift award yeah. rates, pay conditions, and so on. And I mean, I could go on, but so they they are solid, really solid. But the question is, how are they going to implement this? That's that's what boggles me at the moment because we, we are, the unions are so um, you know uh, belted in, they're tied in with all the laws at the moment. What room does the ACTU have in in trying to fight for these demands? Well, well one thing one thing I think they've got on uh, we've got on our side is, is collective action. Mm. So, like like in the previous campaigns when we've had national day of action. Um, well, it does a couple of things. One, it brings everybody together, which is a great sense of solidarity, etc. Um, we've got to take it up to the bosses as well as the government. So the bosses need to be put on notice. National Days of Action um, and full walkout for everybody um, is probably one of the best best ways of doing that. It also prevents um, individuals from being fined or prosecuted. Because when everybody in Australia goes out, um, or all the unions take action around the country, um, it makes it very difficult for, um, for anyone to be prosecuted, and there wasn't anyone last time. And at the end of the day, it's a fundamental political right to go and express yourself. So I think that, that's, that's one big thing that we've got on our side. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and that definitely needs to happen. Um, Victoria is kicking it off. This year, as we did in 2005, Always. Um, we're, we're going out on May 9. Yes. Um, we're expecting that to be very big. Mm. It should have a big impact in the media um, and start. And anyone who hasn't heard about the campaign yet, i.e. you don't watch TV, you're not on Facebook, 
and you haven't got a, um, a well-organised union delegate on your workplace, um, if you haven't heard about it yet, you will after May 9th. Good. Um, and that's, so that's, that's the other thing of getting the word out. So mm-hmm. we've got numbers and we've got resources and um, of the whole working class as our strength. Um, the, the key, the, the critical thing will be what are we asking for? And, um, and a lot of those basics are being covered in the campaign. We need to be able to access workplaces. Workers need to be able to uh, collectively organise. We need to look at some fundamentals like pay increases. The awards haven't been serviced for a lot of years. And EBA... And that's, uh, given the bosses... No? Sorry, I was going to say the EBA is becoming redundant at the moment given the number of EBAs that are being destroyed by the bosses. Well, it's, it's a loophole in the laws where the bosses can seek to end the EBA and push work or threaten to push workers back down onto the award mm. or they can end a contract and start a new contract um, with, with workers, work, workers on a much lesser rate. Yeah. Um, that loophole needs to go yeah. in the laws. Mm. Um, because that's just a straight out 30, 40, 50% cut. Mm. Um, but the other thing that we need to do is we need to lift the awards up closer to the EBA um, rate, which is the real living market weight, mm-hmm. um, so that they can't be used as a lower, a lower level threat yes. uh, to push workers back onto. Mm. And how, how do you think... Um the ACT you'll go about implementing this. Um, I, I know you said this. You, you've got you've got collective mobilisations. Um, this is oh, this this is a tough battle the ACT is taking on. So what plans do they have? How in terms of actually implementing this successfully? Well, I mean, they'll, they'll start off with all the basics first: the education, getting all the members up to speed, all the workers up to speed, um, building um, what they call a, a mandate for change to change the rules. Yep. Um, that'll give them some leverage with um, government people. Um, but uh, at, at the end of the day, if the, the only thing I'd be worried about is if they just stopped there. Yes, I would and, too. <laughs> and, and worked on a, you know, a, a social media campaign and a, and a lobbying campaign. Mm. Even if the government did change, then they'd be relying on the tactic of may the best lobbyists win. Yes. And... Um, that's something that the bosses, when lobbying the Senate, that's something that the bosses are very good at, and you can't always rely on politicians. No. So no. I'd still be in favour of uh, pushing forward with an industrial campaign, because all the things that we've ever won throughout history yep. have been after an industrial campaign where the bosses have conceded, and a deal is done, and there's some sort of concession and changes to the awards or to the agreements, etc. Mm. But at the moment, with the other states taking action on public holidays, Saturdays and Sundays, um, you know, we need to get them on board for a proper national day of action. Mm. We need to start hurting some of the bosses mm. so that they can see that this is serious. It's not just a re-election exercise of the RLP. It's not just a lobbying exercise of the Senate. Uh, the trade union movement really need this to happen because working-class people are suffering. Yes, and of it, course. It's, it's become so clear, all the studies, even the bosses' studies, the RBA, etc., that Australians can't afford to live in Australia at the moment. One in five children are in poverty. 65, 60% of people are in precarious employment. Um, it's becoming harder to get a home, and the gap between the rich and poor 
has increased. Now, there's not an economist that isn't saying that that needs to change. Mm. Now, we can't sit back and wait for the the big end of town to decide when they're ready to give us a pay rise because that will never happen. And trade union movement's always known that, and that's why we've always fought for change, and we know that we have to win it ourselves. Mm. Okay, what what do you say to people who say, well, the ACT is always tail end the ALP, um, we see this perhaps as a cynical exercise given that the federal elections are coming. Um, what Was there anything in the uh, mass meeting of delegates that appeared to you that ACT is really serious about winning gains for workers this time and they were putting forward strategies that are going to be convincing workers to actually take action? For a National Day action, you got about, you have to have workers that are convinced that they're going to fight this because they want it not because to, to tail end the, the, the ALP, so to speak. So what do you say to people like that, Tim? Well, for, for a start, I think most workers understand that we need to take action. Mm-hmm. Um, what they need, what, what is required of us in the union movement with, with, with all workers is to give them the confidence that what we're doing is a genuine campaign to, to lift their living standards. And... In past campaigns where we've done that, they've joined up, they've helped, um, they've come out in droves. Mm. If they think, and, and some workers and campaigners are always a little bit sceptical, if they think that it's just to re-elect the government or change the government, re-elect Labor, and nothing's really going to change much. Yep. And I can understand that because, you know, once bitten, twice shy. Yes. Um, not a lot changed after uh, 2007. Mm. So um, that's why I think an industrial campaign needs to be part of the strategy. And um, and workers aren't silly. If they, if they can see there's a campaign, they'll, they'll, they'll jump into it, boots and all. Mm. Okay, that's great. Uh, as per your assessment, you're saying that all the other states now have to have delegates meetings? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Not just one, mm-hmm. but on, ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not going to be. It's not going to be an easy fix. We, we will get a couple of wins out of this next 12 months, but not all the demands are going to be met, and we need to campaign. We'll keep campaigning on that. And um, the, our strength is our delegates, and that last last week showed that how many turned up at short notice. So ongoing delegates meetings are a must. Yep. Um, Last week showed that all the delegates are keen for campaign. Yep. We have another delegates meeting for a over 10 years, 13 years in Victoria. Um, the other states, New South Wales had a couple last year, and, um, and they were well attended. Uh, so I think the ongoing delegates meetings are a must. Not all of our demands are going to be met up front. We'll win a couple this year over the next 12 months. But um, a lot of the demands are going to have to be um, ongoing and continue to be fought for and pushed for. And the best way to do that is to get everyone together, keep prioritising the campaigns, keep uh, the demands, prioritising the demands, working out different tactics in different states with different delegates. Um, And if people feel that they're part of something and they're contributing, they will take that away and push it in their workplaces. If they think it's just a top-down, the strategy's already been worked out, voted on, uh, we've we just got to implement it, and it's just a show, then it won't happen. 
Okay, so tell us a little bit about the feel when you went to the directors' meeting. What did it feel like being in there and having the discussions about this campaign? What did you get out of it? I've I've heard Sally speak a couple of times now. Yeah. And everybody in the in the room had nods when she explains the situ- the economic situation situation in Australia. Everyone understands it and agrees with her. When she says that workers need X, Y, and Z, uh, they all say yes. That's what workers need. Everyone, everyone knows this fundamental stuff, mm. and they're just so wrapped that a, a union leader standing up there and saying this stuff, and is uh, trying to come up with strategies to win, win it. And um, so I reckon for for the foreseeable future. All, all the delegates are going to be backing uh, Sally and the ACTU in this campaign to change the rules, uh, 100%. Sounds good. Okay, is there anything else you want to say finally, Tim, before we wrap up? At the end of the day, all campaigns are about who lasts the longest and who has the biggest impact. We've got numbers and we've got the majority of voters and we've got the whole working class as our main resource. Uh, we don't have the media, but they hate us. Um, and it's always going to be an uphill battle to get our message across and, um, and win, to win the hearts and minds of workers that this is what needs to happen. Um, but having said that, workers want this. They want a pay rise. They want job security. They want health and education for their kids. They want a future. And... At the moment, in Australia, the only one putting that up in, in the mainstream parliamentary sphere is the ACTU's campaign for change the rules. Hmm. Great stuff. Let's hope this campaign really inspires more people and actually appeals to the other people who are not necessarily working, but whether it's underemployed or even, even the unemployed people, and they'll join the campaign too. Yeah, yeah okay. that's it. Thank you, Tim. Thanks a lot, everyone. Okay, Have a good day. Bye. Welcome back to um, Green Life Week Radio on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. And that interview brings us back to brings us to the end of the program. Hmm. And I just want to thank um, Ham Middleton um, for that amazing um, analysis on ANZAC and Tim Gooden, of course, the um, discussion on change rules. And Adrienne Walters from the Human Rights Law Centre discussing the abortion laws, um, hopeful change in Queensland. Um, just to remind uh, listeners, one, the um, Radiothon's coming, and I'm hoping that people um, have enjoyed and do enjoy our program and will be happy to contribute some um, money towards um, sustaining this program. Um, and we also have let want to let you know that it's available on podcast if you missed it. Past um, programs are always on podcast. I try and do it every um, you know, um, week and a half or so. And it should, this, this and last week's one should be available soon. And, of course, you can find a lot of this on the Internet. Um, okay, you want to say something, uh, Jacob, before we close shop? No, I'd just like to thank every, all the listeners for tuning into our program this morning. Okay, thank you very much, and we shall make way for BZE.